0: You're listening to The Media Narrative, a show about media makers, the stories they tell and how they work. I'm Rob Hochschild. In this episode, Carolyn Wilkins. She's a musician, composer, and faculty member at Berklee College of Music. She performed with the Pittsburgh Symphony under Andre Previn. She also performed with Melba Moore, Nancy Wilson, Fifth Dimension, and many other great musicians. But on top of all that, not just a musician, but also the author of five books, two of them memoirs relating to her family history. I wanted to talk to her about what compelled her to write about her grandfather. He was one of the first African-Americans to serve in a high-ranking role in the U.S. government. That was under the Eisenhower administration. She describes the surprising discovery she made and how it impacted the way she viewed herself. Carolyn Wilkins, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this interview.
0: Me too. You're an accomplished jazz musician, a pianist, vocalist, band leader, several CDs out as a leader, a very active, creative life. And then 10 years ago, nearly 10 years ago, you published your first book, Damn Near White and African American Families Rise from Slavery to Bittersweet Success. So Yes. Yes. I
1: have to say, though, that's not my first book. Berkeley would be very disappointed if I did (laughs) not mention that I have a textbook called Tip's For singers that came out on Berkeley Press and that actually came out a few years before. But this was my first memoir for sure.
0: Thank you for that clarification. We would not want to upset Berkeley by leaving that out. No, we would not. Uh, So reading this fascinating book really made me want to talk to you uh, and hear more about it. Mm -hmm. Before we begin, however, can I ask you to read something from the book?
1: Absolutely. I'd be delighted.
0: So this is a few paragraphs from page 142 to 143. Okay.
1: I had finally gotten an answer to the question that had been driving me for over three years. As much as I ever would, I now knew what had caused my grandfather's departure from the Labor Department. And as well as anyone now living could, I think I now understood why the whole event had been so traumatic for him. To be honest, discovering the truth about my grandfather's resignation had also been painful for me. As I sat in my car that hot July afternoon, tears mingled with the drops of sweat coursing down my cheek. Unlike his fellow Black First E. Frederick Morrow, J. Ernest Wilkins left no memoir after his tenure as a government official. A tight-lipped and reserved man, J. Ernest refused to discuss his resignation with the press. But in his quiet way, my grandfather had been a fighter. Although he was no longer part of the Labor Department, he continued his career in public service. Rousing from my sweaty reverie, I unbuckled my seatbelt, dug out a tissue from the glove compartment, wiped my eyes, and got out of the car. As I imagined what Jay Ernest might have said about the tears I was now shedding, I had to smile. If I had, in the last three years, learned anything at all about my grandfather, it was that he did not indulge in self-pity. If Jay Ernest had been sitting in the car with me at that moment, he would have reminded me that, although he had left the labor department, His most significant career accomplishment was still ahead.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for reading that, Carolyn. I picked that because it's one of these moments in the book where your research seems to bring you so close to these ancestors of yours as if they're right there in the room with you. Uh, There's a number of those moments in the book, and I want to delve more into that as we talk. Before you began your research, how much did you know about the family history?
1: I knew that he was a significant person, of course. I knew that he was the first Black uh, under-assistant Secretary of Labor. But the many details that I uncovered, uh, first about his upbringing, his family, his education— all of those things were new to me, his military service, everything that I put in the book, most of that I did not know. and as uh, as you know, the driving force that had motivated me to write the book was his uh, my grandfather's abrupt resignation from the labor Department after being appointed there with so much uh, fanfare only three years earlier. So, um, those things I did not know.
0: The inciting incident that really compelled you to go after this research was why did he resign his position?
1: Right. Why did he resign? What happened? It was kind of a mystery.
0: But in the course of this book, there's so much other material that you delve into. There's other family members you dig into quite a lot. I wonder if you could sort of Talk about the whole scope of the book, and and sort of um, in in a in in as succinct a way as you can, sort of describe the kind of whole unfolding of the story that you tell.
1: Well, um, the book uh, came about, as I say, because I uh, was always very close to my great aunt. Marjorie. And she was kind of the family griot. She was the repository of family history. And she had saved these clippings about my grandfather. And so after she passed, I inherited all of her stuff. And I started kind of looking through that stuff. And it made me curious. And my own background had been very much kind of onward and upward in a more integrated setting, not in an all-black setting, not having to deal with segregation and second-class things nearly as much as my parents had. And so much of this history, although they knew it, they didn't actually talk about it very much. And so I became, especially as I got older Curious about who I was, what my real identity was, what was I really about, what had made me who I was. The title, Damn Near White, referring to skin color because I'm a relatively light skin color for an African-American Uh, That in itself is a story. How did I get this way? How did my parents get this way? What was the whole culture? It turned out there was a whole culture around that that I had to learn about. And although I in many ways rebelled against it as a child, later I came to understand it as a coping mechanism that they had developed to deal with the racism in their uh, time the racism that they had suffered. So long story short, I went on a quest, and as I went on a quest, I discovered that a lot of the things about my grandfather that I thought were true were not, in fact, as they appeared, and that he himself had come from a very poor family, that his own father had abandoned uh My grandfather's mother, my great grandmother, had been abandoned with five children. uh, And my great grandmother washed clothes for a living. And so she was a very, very, um, had a very, very difficult life with a lot of personal challenges. And my grandfather had come from that environment to rise up all the way to the heights of being the first. He was, uh, at, at the height of his position, he was the highest-ranking African American in the government and the only one in the upper levels of the Labor Department at all. So for him to rise from the child, uh, illegitimate child of a washerwoman to this position was a story that I felt I had to tell.
0: And it is an extraordinary one to hear about that evolution when you talk about your great-grandfather, John Bird Wilkins. Right. Um, and when you look at at your grandfather and actually the generation after that, your father and his brothers, mm-hmm. these were all extremely accomplished people. Yes. Uh, the, in fact, if I'm getting this right, you're, you're Ernest, J. Ernest Jr., Got a Ph.D. in physics by the time he was 19 years old.
1: Yes, and he actually uh, went on. He was a genuine bona fide genius by any measure. and he, Studied with
0: Einstein. He right?
1: studied with Einstein after he graduated, and he also worked on the early stages of the Manhattan Project because it was housed at the University of Chicago where my Uncle Ernest was a student. And um, yes, my father uh, was a graduate of Harvard Law School. His brother, John, was also a graduate of Harvard Law School. Everyone in the family, there was um, this feeling that everyone in the family needed to uh, have accomplished something. And in fact, even... Uh, My grandmother, although women were considerably less uh, expected to have great things, my grandmother also had a master's degree in math and also studied progressive cutting-edge techniques in education that she had applied to her children as part of the reason why they were all so brilliant at an early age. And they all skipped Grades. They. My father graduated from elementary school when he was, uh, I think he graduated high school when he was 13. And wow. um, yeah, because he went to college when he was 14. They all were um, really pushed to to be as brilliant as they possibly could.
0: So not only were they standouts in terms of their intellect and accomplishment, but Uh, both your father and one of his brothers went to Harvard. uh, And so they were very much in the minority as African-Americans.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Although Harvard, interestingly, um, has this weird tradition of African-Americans who have attended there going all the way back into, I want to say the 1800s. I might be wrong, but uh, it's a very interesting thing. It's never been a lot, Um, But they have, of course, been extremely influential people, including, of course, our former president, Barack Obama. Um, This is a tradition. He wasn't a standalone.
0: The, so one of the among the many interesting things about these discoveries, all this accomplishment uh, and the great work of uh, all of your relatives, was that when you took it back far enough, you did discover this man, John Bird Wilkins, that sort of in and maybe in a strange, ironic way, set that tide. Forward, even though he had sort of a mixed experience himself. How would you describe him? Did you know anything about him?
1: Not at all. He had never been mentioned. And although clearly my grandfather knew all about him, he never spoke of him. And um, according to family lore, we'll never know for sure, but he never, once my grandfather became successful, he did not acknowledge his own father because I think there was a great deal of bitterness. John Bird Wilkins was born a slave in Mississippi. And I believe I've seen pictures of him. He's extremely fair skinned and looks, really looks nearly like a white person. And it is my thought, although I was unable to prove it, that he was the child of a minister, a white man who was a, I think, a Presbyterian minister in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, the child of a white man with one of his uh, servants. And I believe that that double kind of edge had both an advantage in a sense for my great-grandfather in that He obviously was an extremely literate man. He, unlike many, many slaves, could actually read and write. He was extremely articulate. Um, And he, after emancipation, went forth to try to—he was a very brilliant, very restless man. Uh, And he tried many things. He was a newspaper Writer. He was involved in uh, a couple of the African-American newspapers of the day. He was a Baptist minister. He got frustrated with the Baptists because his mind was um, more sort of free-thinking. For a while, he tried to join the uh, Unitarian Church, and he actually was involved with them a little bit. He was a very— um, Creative, very brilliant, free-thinking man. He invented things. He has a patent for some kind of ag- agricultural gadget uh, that he invented. Um, so clearly, my grandfather did get some of his academic brilliance and his his mental acuity from my great grandfather. However, my great grandfather was also a serial womanizer in the worst way. And he went through many wives, some he married, some were only wife in deed, and he had multiple families. And this was the thing that really, I think, made the rift between him and my Grandfather, because my great-grandfather, as I said earlier, abandoned the family, including five children and my great-grandmother, who was washing clothes. And meanwhile, my great-grandfather had a second family down in in Little Rock, Arkansas, and was living a whole other life down there. So, yes, yes. So needless to say, my grandfather never spoke of this man. I did not discover him until I went on Ancestry.com. And I actually paid a woman to help me do the research because, as you may know, ancestor research is more than a notion. And she helped to uncover the connection and, and... once I knew who he was, I began to find newspaper articles about him and and things about... He had quite a colorful life.
0: Well, and all told, between those partners of his, he had 17 children, is that yeah,
1: right? Yeah, I want to say it's either 17 or 19 children. He wow. was a busy guy.
0: He was an interesting guy. He had all these children, and, uh, you know, it's interesting when I hear you talk about this, mentioning your, your great-grandfather and your great-grandmother... Your grandfather. At some point while reading this book, I had to stop and diagram all of this. Anybody mm. listening right now <laughs> might have that same feeling. So here actually is my attempt oh, to draw part of the that. family tree. It's, <laughs> it's really sloppy writing. You can oh, tell me how accurate gorgeous. that might be.
1: <laughs> that looks fabulous. Well, I'm impressed.
0: Well, it really helped me to to get it all straight because there was a mm-hmm. lot of really interesting uh, people in this thing, mm-hmm. and even on your on your mother's on your grandmother's side of the family, if I'm mm-hmm. getting that right, mm-hmm. um, there was this whole interesting story with uh, 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 an African named Jeremiah who was brought to this oh, country yes. in slavery as yes,
1: well. Yes, yes, that's that's another whole story and as you may know the amazing thing about doing ancestor research is that you turn up all kinds of things. Right. You know, people back in the day did not share our current contemporary fondness for candor and truth. I think they felt the less said the better about certain things, particularly if they were painful, difficult, embarrassing. They just buried them and never spoke of them. Uh, So, yes, my great-aunt Marjorie, who is actually the sister of my grandfather's wife, Um, my great aunt Marjorie, who uh, was the one who first sort of set me on this quest of finding out about the ancestors. She used to, she was a very dramatic woman. She was a musician like me. She was about four feet 11, a little spark plug of energy. She sang, she played the piano. She actually ran a music school in Bedford-Stuyvesant for at least, 50 years on and off, she ran this school. Um, but the point being, she used to always at every family gathering, tell this story about Jeremiah who had come from Africa and who was enslaved and who was our first ancestor. And the story was told with great drama and gusto. Um, but I could never quite really home in on it and find it because in the classic way of these stories, it had been so embellished over the years. There was a part where maybe he had been kidnapped by gypsies. Mm-hmm. There was a part where he had run away on the Underground Railroad and went to live with Indians in Canada. There was all kinds of drama. And actually... um It was difficult to unearth where was the real person in that. But once again, my um, assistant or the woman that I paid uh, um, to, Mariah Cooper was her name. I paid her to help me research. She actually uncovered a great-granddaughter of this Jeremiah. And it turned out that he was a real person and that this great granddaughter, who at the time I found her, I think was already in her nineties, had been telling this story. And she found me a little newspaper article that validated at least some of the things. No, he was not kidnapped by gypsies, (laughs) but um, he had been a slave in Kentucky and he had purchased his own freedom. Uh, by making furniture, and then he had then also purchased the freedom of his wife and, and daughter and moved to Indiana, and it was a just an incredible sense of connection that I got. I have to say that in the course of doing this book, I uncovered many, many relatives that I never knew I had and that I am now in touch with, including children who are related to uh, the Raffish John Byrd Wilkins through other various other women. Uh, but now their grandchildren, great grandchildren, etc. I'm in touch with and the children of this woman, Ethel Porter. So it's been an incredibly rewarding experience, actually.
0: Yeah. In, in the face of Some fairly dark discoveries that you make, both about events and about the people in your own family, there are those moments of lightness when you have this discovery. And often when you have one of these discoveries, you sing that song by Sister Sledge as you celebrate. (laughs) We
1: are family. Right. And I have to say, if you had ever met my Aunt Marjorie, she's the one that started that. And you can picture her. She's four foot 11 and she would belt it out and then she would make us all sing it. And I don't think we ever learned actually the rest of the song. We would just (laughs) sing that little part. But yes, I, I learned a lot of amazing things about my family through this book.
0: One category of the things you learned you mentioned a few minutes ago was how you sort of put together some things about yourself, how it helped you uncover some things about your identity, um, both, um, you know, as a light-skinned African-American woman and, and other attributes of your personality. Can you say anything about that? Did you identify in particular with any, any new people you learned about and saw connections to who you are?
1: Yes, I. that's an excellent question. I will say for anyone out there who's writing a memoir, um, at first you set out thinking that it's all about the facts. I'm going to dig up the facts. I'm going to find out who these people were and all that. And yes, that's important. But in the end, I think what happens is that you're put on an inner journey Because these people are part of you. Their story has affected you. You have been shaped and molded in ways that you did not even know were available. And certainly for me, um, as a light-skinned African-American and coming of age as I did at the very kind of beginning of the um, affirmative action era And all of this, there were many, many issues. There was a lot swirling around in those times. There was a lot of self-identity for me that I was trying to sort through about who I was, about where I came from, uh, about the level of privilege in which I'd been raised. Because, of course, my father was a Harvard graduate at the same time. Um, I was still, uh, I can remember vividly walking down the street in Chicago with my boyfriend and some random woman coming up and spitting on us, Mm. Um, white woman, uh, and cursing, some kind of curse in Polish, Mm. I don't even know what, but this was the climate of the times. Uh, Sadly, it might still be the climate of the times, but we're not going to go into that discussion today. Fair enough. But yes, um, so for me to discover something about my family, my history, helped to root and ground me and helped me to understand uh, who I was in a much deeper way than I had ever done before.
0: You have worked most of your life as a musician— um, and then you, you turn to, now you've written several books, uh, after the music book, then now there's been two memoirs and some mystery fiction as well, right? Yes. Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you is, does the music side of your brain and personality, has that had an influence over this writing and research side and vice versa? How do you see them interacting or complementing each other?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, I would say it's really interesting because at first I felt that they were kind of two sides of the brain, right? The music for me, maybe because I'd been doing it for so many years, felt very natural. And as a jazz musician, you're a lot of it is just kind of receiving uh, an impulse to play something and then having, God willing, the ability and the technique to be able to just put what you hear in your mind out into the world. Whereas for me, the writing, um, because I had not uh, prior to writing this Damn Near White book, although I had written the textbook, a singing textbook is kind of one thing, but a memoir is a, a lot more uh, real writing. And at first I found it uh, quite daunting because I had not written you know, since high school. So Mm -hmm. I had to go back and figure out how to make correct sentences and how to, and even in the passage that I just read you in my mind, I'm going, oh, I could have removed (laughs) this word and I could have, you know, but, uh, so the writing was a lot more conscious. I had to really focus in on it. I think, however, now having written, as you say, five books, um, I'm now in the process, as we speak, of writing another book, this time fiction, but I am finding that it flows a lot more smoothly than it did before. And that, in some ways, that same ability to just kind of listen and receive that one needs as a jazz musician is also available to the writer once you have a certain amount of um, technique and I'm, I'm getting better. So, yeah.
0: I uh, well, clearly, and uh, your, your first effort out was uh damn good yeah. as well, uh, <laughs> oh, because you. I think it's a very clearly written story despite its complexities. And I did write, create my family tree here to uh, help or your family tree <laughs> to help me get through it. Nice. But I, I thought it was really well written. And, and I, I think it's really a great accomplishment and inspiring to me because I want to write a similar book about my family. Now, you didn't set out necessarily to write a book. Is that right? You just really wanted to learn about these stories.
1: That's right. I wanted to research. I was just super curious. But then the more I got into it, I really felt this is a story, and. I thought if I don't write this story, which is probably the motivation for any of us that write books, because as you know, it's a whole lot of work. Yep. Um, But I really, I knew that if I did not write the story, no one would write it. My grandfather was famous in his time, but he's not famous now. And he might be worth a bio- biographical entry in some you know, uh, journal somewhere, but it wouldn't be the full story that I wanted to tell. And so I really felt um, a calling, a very uh, almost an obsessive calling, I would say, to go ahead and tell this story.
0: And I think everyone should be glad that you did, because it's not only the story of this one man. It's a story of some very important components to 20th century American history. Mm. And so I'm glad you mentioned him. I want to bring it back to him before we close, Mm -hmm. not to give away any spoilers here or anything like that. I want to encourage Mm -hmm. people to read this excellent book. But what did you, in fact, learn about his resignation as assistant secretary uh, of education?
1: It was a complicated story once again, but I think the salient features were, one, he was never put there to actually uh, accomplish anything. He was put there to be a figurehead. We were in the Cold War at the time. He was sent abroad to show the world that despite the lynchings and the civil rights turmoil and the segregation and all that, that somehow, despite all of that, America really was treating its citizens of color uh, fairly and that democracy was a good thing. Remember that at that time there was a thought that America would spread democracy throughout the world and the big enemy was the communists and so my grandfather was sent to these events and conventions and, and labor and this was conventions.
0: Around, I'm sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. so this was around the the, in the years. 50s. In the 50s, around 1953
1: Eisenhower. was when he, exactly, President Eisenhower. And so my grandfather, he was happy to do that. But at the same time, he had his own opinions about how things should be done. He was used to running his own business. He'd been a self-employed attorney with his own firm for 20 years or more by the time he was hired for this position. And he was very outspoken. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't used to I'll scratch your back, you scratch. So if he saw things he didn't like, he called them out. He was prickly, he was difficult. He wrote long memos to higher ups complaining about different things that he didn't feel were right. And I think in the end, he got under the skin of his boss, James Mitchell, um, and uh, it was decided. Mitchell went to Eisenhower and said, I want this guy out of here. And Eisenhower, uh, my grandfather, actually went to Eisenhower in a very dramatic meeting. 13-minute meeting. That's right. And pleaded for his job, and Eisenhower fired him. Um, So... That was a, a very deep thing. And that's basically what happened.
0: It's, it's really a shame, although it does seem as though he had an impact before, before he died. He also served on the Civil Rights Commission, the first iteration of the Civil Rights Commission. And um, you end your book with a big focus on that. And what kind of impact did he have through that work?
1: Yes, that's very important. And I'm glad you bring that up because I did not want the story to be just a tragedy. Um, I wanted to show his triumph. And yes, he was on the very first ever U.S. Civil Rights Commission. At the time, he was the only African-American on that commission, and they were looking into violations of voting rights Sadly, we are cycling around back to that again, but that's another topic for another time. Mm-hmm. But they they went, my grandfather went with a group uh, from the commission, and they went down to Alabama, where at the time, although there was a huge black population there, uh, the uh, white democratic power, they had a whites-only primary, and they had a whites-only Party and they had found all kinds of ways to disenfranchise African Americans to keep them from voting. Because if they had been allowed to vote, they would have been the majority. So they simply they had all kinds of bizarre tests. You had to uh, write out the first five paragraphs of the Constitution, or name every president in order, or. Name the number of jelly beans in a jar. Mm. And if you were off by one, you couldn't vote. Or, you know, they had all these tests, which were clearly just ridiculous things to keep black people from voting. And so, my grandfather, as a representative of the federal government, went down with the rest of the Civil Rights Commission and they held hearings. And all these uh, brave, Uh, African-Americans from places, little towns in Alabama, got up on the witness stand and testified to all these ways in which they had been denied the right to vote. And my grandfather was part of the group that wrote a huge report that ended up um, being part of the Voting Rights Act. My grandfather had passed by the time the act was signed but he was certainly influential in helping it
0: to move forward. Well, he did great work, and we could really use somebody like him today, that's for sure. (laughs) True. Carolyn Wilkins, thanks so much for this book and for the conversation today.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.
0: A few years after Carolyn Wilkins released Damn Near White, she published a second memoir called They Raised Me Up. In that book, Carolyn writes about the challenges of being a single mom and a woman playing jazz while weaving in stories about five women who inspired her through their own similar struggles. Learn more about Carolyn Wilkins at CarolynWilkins.com. Show notes for this episode can be found along with links at TheMediaNarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki, Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe or listen to the Media Narrative at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, Google Play, and many other podcast platforms where you find your podcasts. I'm Rob Hoschel, Thank you so much for listening.